Turn in your Bibles now to John uh, chapter 10. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, the ushers are going to uh, take care of that. We do that at our church. This is kind of like the concession stand at the Rogers Center. Uh, so just holler, uh, except these Bibles do not cost like $11 like a Coke does at a Blue Jays game. So uh, these Bibles are free, and I'm assuming you can have them. If you don't own a Bible, this is a, uh, our, a their gift to you because I can't really speak on behalf of uh, this uh, church, but I'm pretty sure. Are the Bibles free? Are they free? They're free. Okay. Free Bibles. All right. If you like the chair you're into, I'm sure you can take that. Okay. Um, so that whole Toronto Raptor thing was a big deal, right? Um, and uh, I, I know we're all kind of like Kawhi me a river because uh, Kawhi chose to leave, but I mean, that was a, that was a pretty good season. I mean, it worked out uh, uh, just, just, it was just awesome. Uh, we, we won the championship, and it was amazing as uh, Jurassic Park in downtown Toronto continued to grow, like it almost made it to Etobicoke. Um, it, it, um, different news outlets were trying as best they could to find some sort of uni- unique story about, uh, about the Raptors. Like, why does Danny Green cut his hair that way? And, 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 and one, of, one of the articles that I read was about how they landed, this is not their logo right now, but how did they land on that original logo of Toronto uh, Raptors? It turns out that um, before they had their first season in 1995, they had a nationwide competition. And it was a contest. You could submit entries, ideas for the team's colors and logo, mascot, name. And they had thousands of entries. And they narrowed it down to kind of the, uh, the, the top 10 or 15 and had sort of a people vote on that. And then there was a select group that made the final decision. And some of the top entries that we could have been cheering for um, this spring would have been the Toronto Bobcats, uh, the Toronto Dragons. One of the other entries was the Toronto Scorpions, the Toronto Terriers, or the Toronto Towers, or the Toronto T-Rex. T-Rex was actually going to, uh, going to be the name of the team, but the owner's son had just seen Jurassic Park, which you know, was a big deal in the mid-90s. And uh, the son was the T-Rex. He was the slow, boring dinosaur with the cup of water. I, I don't want to be that. No, the, the, all the kids at the time were super into the Raptors. Now, if I were choosing a, 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 a team, I, I'd want something with longer arms than the, than the Raptor arms. But um, they ended up choosing uh, the Raptors. But I didn't see all of the entries, but I'm, I'm quite confident that no one suggested the Toronto Sheep. You see, when you're trying to name your team, you want something that's like intimidating, right? Like something that's big, something that's strong, something that's uh, ferocious, something that's fast. Sheep are none of those things. Sheep are helpless, vulnerable, unintelligent, slow, and cuddly. But when we get to John chapter 10, the Gospel of John has these you know, the kind of well-known I am statements that Jesus makes um, about himself. He says things like, I'm the light of the world, I'm the, I'm the bread of life. He also says, I'm the door of the sheep. He also says, I'm the good shepherd. That's what he says in John chapter 10. And what's unique about John 10 is that when he makes this statement about I am, he's also simultaneously saying, you are. 
Because when he says, you know, I am the bread of life, he's saying, you are all hungry. And we're okay with it. Some of you are hungry right now. You're thinking like, Swiss chalet, 11 o'clock service. Come on, I should have had a bigger breakfast. But, but when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, all of us, every human on planet Earth can resonate with the idea of being hungry and hungry for something deeper, something more than a quarter chicken white with fries. That there's something that we, that we, have, a, we have a longing for. And so, yeah, Jesus, you're the bread of life, and I have a hunger inside of me for meaning, for significance, for love. When Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, we all know what it's like, the darkness in this world, the evil, even the evil we see in ourselves. We're, we're all okay with Jesus being the light of the world because we know. We know about the darkness. But John chapter 10, we really come to a crossroads, and we got to ask ourselves an important question, because if we are going to accept Jesus on his terms, not on ours, and if we're going to believe about him what he says about himself, then we also have to believe about what he says about us. And so if we're going to understand and accept that Jesus is, in fact, the good shepherd, we are going to have to admit that we are sheep. Just take a minute, just say it. I am a sheep. Just say it to yourself right now. Tell the person beside you, you know, you're a sheep. (laughs) Hopefully they don't smell like one, but anyway. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So... Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, it's so good to be here in Huntsville, Ontario, among brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, you know how much I love this place. You know uh, how much uh, I love your word, Lord. I I pray, God, that 
that you right now would speak so powerfully and so clearly in a way that's unquestionable. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit who gave inspiration to John to write these words as he heard Jesus say them, Lord, that the same Spirit who gave the inspiration would now give the illumination to open our eyes, God, to see Jesus as shepherd and to see ourselves as sheep. And so, God, I pray that you would do what only you could do. I pray that we would hear your voice, the voice of the shepherd, speaking through your living and active word. In Jesus' name, amen. So you notice verse 1 and verse 7 both have Jesus saying, truly, truly. He, he started in the first six verses kind of painting a picture, right? You've got, a, you've got a sheepfold and a door, and you've got some people climbing in by the other way, and then, and then a shepherd who goes in through the door, the gatekeeper opens it up for him. And, and then, but then it says at the end of verse 6 that he used this figure of speech, but they did not understand. They, they weren't picking up what he was putting down. And so now Jesus is going to explain why did he use that word picture. And so he says, truly, truly, a second time in, in verse 7. He says, truly, truly. Okay, I'll, let me tell you what I mean. The first thing he says, he says, I am the door of the sheep. And so if you're taking notes today, you can jot this down. Firstly, that Jesus is the door that lets us in. Jesus is the door that lets us in. He says he's the door. He says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Now, and, and he says that the, the thieves and robbers and the sheep did not listen to them. Now, who are the thieves and robbers? Well, you go back to his analogy. Go back to verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief or a robber. How can you tell if it's a thief or a robber? A thief or a robber doesn't go in through the door. Jesus is the door. Anyone who claims to be teaching the word of God or the ways of God, but is not pointing people to the son of God, is a thief and a robber. Anyone who teaches the Bible and says that this is how you can be become prosperous financially, or this is how you can have what, whatever you, whatever false teaching there may be, if they're not going through the door, then they're a thief or a robber. And when Jesus is talking about all who go before me, he's referring to the religious and socio-political elites at the time, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were thieves and robbers. They were, they were trying to lead the sheep, but they weren't, they weren't leading the sheep through the door. They weren't pointing people to Jesus, the Son of God. They were climbing in by another way. And for them at the time, it was rules and religious rituals and all, nothing to do with a relationship with, with God. And so Jesus is warning them about the false teachers. He's saying they're not entering through the door. There's all kinds of people stand on TV and on the radio and on the internet. They got a Bible in their hand, but they're not pointing people to the door. Jesus says, I am the door. He's the door that, that lets us in. He says in verse 9, I am the door. He says it again. He says, if anyone enters by me, if anyone enters by me, it says two things about him. It says he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So notice the exclusivity here. If you want to be saved, if you, if you need to understand that there is a death after this death and there is a life after this life. 
And, and we, were, we refer to it sort of in shorthand in terms of being saved, being assured that you will have life after this life and escape the death that comes after this death. But the only way, the only way to get into heaven is through the door. Trying to do good deeds or give a lot of money or whatever. That's just trying to climb in or out on another way. Jesus says, I am the door. If you want to be saved, you've got to go through him. But Jesus came to do more than just simply give us a ticket to heaven. He came, notice what it says, they will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. It's, it's, it's not just about getting to heaven when we die. It's about how we live right now. You know, linguists and biologists have been doing a lot of work with sheep recently, and they've been looking at sheep language. It, it, they're, they're calling it sheepese. And, and so these researchers have been spending hours and hours and hours, probably at the University of Guelph or somewhere, trying to, trying to decide figure out what are sheep saying to one another. And they've, really de- they've, they've managed to really determine the sheep. It's very simple language, but they know what sheep are saying. When you hear a sheep go, bah, what the sheep is saying is, I want some grass. <laughs> because sheep don't belong in the pen. They can't get the nutrition that they need in the sheepfold. They can't get the hydration that they need. They were made to eat grass. That's what she, they can't do a lot. But the one thing they can do, they do well, is they can eat grass. They were made to be satisfied in the pasture. And Jesus has come as the door so that we might go in and out and find the satisfaction to live for the purpose for which we were created. And like sheep were made to eat grass, we were made, created, designed to live in relationship with God. And he is our, uh, he is the one who gives us all meaning and all significance and all purpose. And he has come to give us access to the pasture of living in a relationship with him. He contrasts what the door gives and the opportunity uh, that Jesus is presenting as the door. He contrasts that with the thief, verse 10. The thief who, who doesn't use the door comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Behind all of the false teachers, there is one ultimate false teacher, and his name is Satan. He gave his first sermon in the Garden of Eden, where he told Adam and Eve, oh, you will surely not die. He lied. But the serpent, he came to steal and to kill and to destroy, even in that moment. That's all he does. Steal, kill, destroy says, the thief came only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, notice the language that Jesus is using here. In and out and find pasture and abundant life. You see, this isn't how our world thinks about the Christian life. When, when, when our neighbors think about us going to church or doing a Bible study, and, and they, think, they think that we are... are living a confined life, a restricted life. 
that we are not having a, an abundant life, that we're living less of a life than they are. They, they kind of feel sorry for us. But that, that's just a complete misunderstanding of what freedom is. You can't have freedom without some form of restriction. Freedom is not just doing whatever you want. That's just chaos. It, it's amazing. I listen to these, these musicians playing the drums and, and the bass and the, uh, the guitar. Listen, listen. When a, when, a, when a musician is free to play as skillfully as these guys are playing, they play that freely, not by playing whatever notes they want, not by, I'm going to use my toes to... No, that's not freedom. That sounds horrible. Freedom comes when you restrict yourself musically to the scales. When you know the scales, the music sounds good. When it's not, you're not allowed on the platform. Freedom only really comes through restriction. Kawhi Leonard did not dominate for the Raptors by running around with the ball rugby style, by doing whatever he wants, by jumping out of bounds, by putting three or four extra players on the court. No, he couldn't do whatever he wants. But when he restricted himself to the rules of the game, although they don't call traveling anymore in the NBA, it's when you embrace the restrictions, that's where the freedom comes. Do you follow? And so as Christians, yeah, absolutely. There's a door. It is restrictive. You can't go any other way. You have to do it the Jesus way, but that's the way to freedom. And so Jesus has come to give us life and to give it abundantly. So if you want to experience freedom and joy and abundance in your marriage, you got to go through the door. You got to do it God's way. If you want to experience that in your workplace, again, you've got to do it God's way. You've got to act with integrity. You've got to work hard. You've got to go through the door. If this church is going to continue to thrive as a place of abundance and joy and freedom, you've got to stay on track and go through the door. Do it God's way. Don't try to climb over a wall or follow some other way. The true freedom comes from embracing the necessary restrictions. Go through the door. Verse 11, he, he takes a look at the same picture, but now from a different vantage point. At first, he was describing himself as the door. Now he's saying, now think about the same picture, but now he says, I'm the shepherd. So you can jot this down, that Jesus is the shepherd that leads us on. Jesus is the shepherd who leads us on. And in order to really get what Jesus is saying here, we need to understand a little bit of the Old Testament uh, background. Let, let me show you what I mean. Can we get Genesis 48, 15 on the screen? So Genesis 4, this is a quote here from Jacob. Jacob was a bit of a thief and a robber. Uh, he stole birthrights. He stole blessings. He was a liar. He was, he, he was tried to be sort of like a self-made man, and his whole life fell apart. And by the time he came to his end of his life, when his very dysfunctional polygamous family ended up getting to Egypt, he made this comment at the end of his life. He says, God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. You see, Jacob had, find, he had, always, he had tried to do things his own way and manipulate and scheme, take matters into his own hands, and he made a mess of things. Jacob, at the end of his life, finally embraced that he was a sheep in need of a shepherd. 
So Jacob, who really became, you know, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. The whole nation was kind of named after him. His 12 sons were the 12 tribes. He was the first to kind of coin that phrase, God is my shepherd. And then it became popularized, of course, Psalm 23, David, you know, said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But then this metaphor of God as shepherd leading God's people took on sort of a different flavor after David. In Psalm 78, a psalm not written by uh, David, is it Psalm 78? Yeah, Psalm 78, let's look at that on the screen. Reflecting on David's role as king, it says, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfold. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. It's talking about David. David was a shepherd, remember? He wasn't invited to the recruitment session with Samuel. He didn't even get a chance to audition or, or try out because he was out with the sheep. He was a shepherd. But then it says he brought him from the sheepfolds. He brought him to shepherd his people. Israel, his inheritance. It says with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. So Psalm 78 began to set this new tone of, yes, God is the ultimate shepherd over all of us, but the kings of the people of God, the kings of Israel, were referred to as shepherds. And David, you know, he did a great job as a shepherd, as Psalm 78 says. He had an he upright heart. He had a skillful hand. Then David's son Solomon, he became the next shepherd king. Solomon started well, didn't finish well, did he? Then Solomon had a son named Rehoboam, didn't start well, finished even worse. And then after that, it's essentially a dumpster fire, right? You got a couple of highlights, Josiah, Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat. But it, it basically just completely unravels. The shepherds are just horrible. So that by the time you get to uh, the prophet Ezekiel, when the kings have basically squandered all of the wealth and the strength of the nation, they turned away from God, and, and, and they're being led into exile by the Babylonians. This is what Ezekiel has to say. Thus says the Lord, Ah, shepherds. Now, who's he talking to when he says shepherds? He's not talking to the guys out in the field. He's talking to the, guys in, the guy in the palace. The rulers, the kings, he says, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. Does that sound familiar, people who have read the Gospels? Didn't Jesus look out on the crowd and have compassion on them because they were scattered like people without a shepherd? Now look what God says. He says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. God's like, you know what? You want something done? You got to do it. You got to do it yourself. He says, I myself will shepherd my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the straight. I'll do all those things that the other kings didn't do. So God emphatically says, I'm going to come, and I'm personally going to be the king. But then, in the same chapter, just a few verses later, right after God emphatically says, he was going to come and be king, he was going to come and be the shepherd, he says, and I will set up over them one shepherd. Now, he already said who the shepherd's going to be. It's going to be him. But he says, I will set up over them one shepherd. He says, my servant David. David had been dead for centuries. 
He's talking about a descendant of David. And he shall feed them, and he shall feed them, and be their shepherd. And then for, so for years and years, the, the scribes, the scholars, the Bible teachers, there was this sort of like Ezekiel conundrum. How on earth is Ezekiel 34 ever going to be fulfilled? How can God be the shepherd, but somehow a descendant of David be the shepherd at the same time? Fast forward to John chapter 10, where Jesus says, it seems like a seemingly innocuous, just kind of like pastoral, nice statement. But this statement is loaded with meaning. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. As a descendant of David and the rightful heir to the throne of the people of Israel, Jesus is saying that he's, he's the king. But not only that, everything else that Jesus has been saying has been showing that he is God. And so when Jesus is simply saying, I am the good shepherd, he is the, he, he's the answer to how Ezekiel 34 fits together. This is the way that a descendant of David and God himself are simultaneously going to be the one shepherd. But then... As if that weren't mind-blowing enough, look at what he says next. He says, I am the good shepherd, in verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the king. What? I, no king in the history of Israel laid down his life for the sake of his people. And no one ever thought that God himself would lay down. How is that even possible for God to die? And yet Jesus here says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So I want to point out three things about what it means for God to be our shepherd. The first one is this, is that our shepherd is sacrificial. He came to die. He came to be a sacrifice. Jesus can only give abundant life to us if we believe he came to give his life for us. We only experience abundant life when we understand sacrificial life. Jesus didn't just come to give us a couple of like quaint uh, phrases and proverbs to sort of steer us in the right direction. No, he came to shed his blood. He came to be slaughtered for us. And this is how Jesus can be a door. Because we were penned in and walled. There was walls all around us because of our sin. There was no way for us to get out into pasture and to experience life. We were, going to be, we were being, going to be slaughtered by these thieves who were coming in to steal and kill and destroy. And there was no way out. But because Jesus the shepherd laid down his life, then Jesus can become the door to open up a way for us. To break down the barrier that lay between us and the green pastures of God's presence. He bore the wrath of God in our place as our sacrifice because all of us have done things we shouldn't have done. All of us have said things we shouldn't have said. All of us have thought thoughts we shouldn't have thought. And when Jesus hung and bled on the cross, he was taking the punishment that all of us deserve for all of those deeds, all of those words, all of those thoughts. And he paid that penalty in full. He laid down his life for the sheep. In verse 12, he introduces this, this new character into the metaphor. He wasn't mentioned before. Verse 12, he says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd. Notice it says he does not own the sheep. 
Then it says he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees, in verse 13, because he is a hired hand. And it says he cares nothing for the sheep. So this is another uh, contrast. Jesus said, I'm not a thief. I'm not a robber. They're obviously antagonistic towards the sheep. But Jesus says, I'm also not. I'm not just a hired hand. I'm not just sort of neutral in this relationship. He says, the, the hired hand, he doesn't own the sheep. So by contrast, what does that tell us about Jesus? That he owns us, that we belong to him. The hired hand, it said in, in verse 13, he doesn't, he cares nothing. Jesus cares. You see, sometimes we go through this world wondering, does anyone care? Or where do I fit? Where do I belong? Maybe you're feeling that way right now. You need to hear what Jesus is saying. He cares about you. That you, that you have the opportunity to belong to him. You might feel, not feel like you fit in anywhere on planet earth, but you fit in with him, that you belong to him. Verse 14, he repeats himself, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. This is the second thing we need to know about our shepherd is that he's relational. He says, I know my own and my own know me. He's relational. Go back to the old, uh, the, the original metaphor that he used. Look at verse 3. It says, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. He calls them by name. He knows us. And, and we hear his voice. We recognize his voice. He calls us by name. He says, hey, hey, Kai. He, he, he doesn't call him Kaj the first time, right? It's just, it's just straight up. He knows our name. A couple years ago, I was at a, a conference. You know, one, you know, our big sister church down there in Oakville, they're always holding conferences. And these are moments of real anxiety for me because, as I said, I many years spent at Minioe, and then I was involved in, in some Christian groups in university, and then, you know, I always meet people when I go and speak at different churches, and so you go to these big conferences, and there's always this pressure of like, oh, I, I know I know you from somewhere, but I don't know your name, and, it's, and so, do you ever feel that way in certain situations? And uh, so, uh, this person came up to me, and uh, they, they addressed me in some way, but I, it, it didn't quite, I didn't quite hear them. And then we kind of, I was like, I have no idea who this person is. And so we're just having this like very surface level conversation. Yeah, that's good. It's a nice conference. Yeah, you're doing well. Okay, good, good. And then right when they're about to leave, they said, well, you know what? It's just, it's just really good to see you, Giorgio. <laughs> and as soon as they said Giorgio, they looked me in the eye and this look of horror seemed to come over their face. And then they immediately said, you're not Giorgio. <laughs> and I'll just, I'll just never forget that moment because I just, I just, I look at myself and I get confused by, with a lot of people. Like even the Pro Center team was like, they were talking to someone else thinking that they were Ted Duncan. And it happens a lot. Bald guy with a beard. There's a lot of us. We're a dime a dozen. <laughs> and, but somewhere out there, there's a guy that looks like this, and his name is not Rob or Steve or Jim. His name is Giorgio. <laughs> I just think that's amazing. But listen, that will, never, that will never happen with God. He knows our name. 
And looking at verse 4, it says, when he's brought out all his own, those who belong to him, it says the sheep follow him and they know his voice. Do you know his voice? Do you know the, the difference between the voice of the shepherd and the voice of a thief? When you, when you listen to the radio, when you click on a, a link that, that someone posted on Facebook or something like that, and you, you hear someone who's claiming to teach the Bible, do you know it? Do you know? That, that's just, that's not the voice of Jesus. You know, you fire up the grill and you're ready to put the meat on and you open up the meat and you smell it. You're like, I'm not eating that. It just doesn't, it just doesn't smell right. It just doesn't sound right. How, how can we know the voice of Jesus? And what are you doing this summer to make sure that you are getting more and more familiar with the voice of your shepherd? What, what's your plan to get into this book to hear the voice of your shepherd? There's too much at stake to just sort of be casual and haphazard in our discernment. We need to learn the voice of our shepherd. He wants to relate to us. So going back to verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Then look at what he says in verse 15. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I think the two most powerful and profound and life-transforming words in this entire chapter are the two words at the beginning of verse 15, just as. Jesus wants to know us just as the Father knows Jesus and Jesus knows the Father. We're being invited into a relationship that is supernatural and eternal. Jesus isn't new to the whole relationship thing. He's been eternally pre-existent in the context of a relationship known as the Trinity. He's, he has always existed in this love-abounding relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is how Jesus wants to love us. There is no sin involved in the relationship between the Father and the Son, is there? That, that, that's never been a barrier in their relationship. And we need to understand that God does not want to relate to us as sinners. He wants to relate to us as saints and as sons and as daughters, just as the Father relates to the Son. That doesn't mean that we don't continue, don't miss... Don't miss misunderstand me. There's a lot of thieves and robbers out there that try to teach that you know Christians no longer sin or no longer need to confess. There's, and that's not what I'm talking about. The idea here is the intent that what God is aiming at and his desire as work of sanctification in our lives is that we would be relating to God the Father the way the Son relates to the Father. That's absolutely mind-blowing. And that tells us why, as it says at the end of verse 15, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is the purpose of the sacrifice. The, the relationship is the reason why Jesus went to the cross. 
verse 16, he talks about a, a broader circle of relationship. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is talking about it other sheep. That's actually referring to us. He's talking about, or most of us, non-Jewish Christians. We are the other flock, the other sheep. It's interesting because he says, they will hear my voice. He's talking, he's saying in the future. Almost all Jesus' conversations were with, with Jewish people. The Samaritan people, I mean, were even half Jewish, but there's only a handful of people that ever had a conversation with Jesus. You got a couple of Roman officials. You got a woman from Syrophoenicia. But the people who heard Jesus' voice were of Jewish descent. But Jesus says there's other sheep and they will hear his voice. But very few people that weren't Jewish ever actually heard, you know, vibrations coming from the larynx and the voice box of Jesus of Nazareth, hearing that actually reverberate in their eardrum. Yet Jesus says here, and he, Jesus, it's not like he got it wrong or was lying. He says, they will hear his voice. But here's the thing. When, when, the, when, when Peter went into Cornelius' house and broke bread, Cornelius didn't merely hear Peter's voice. He heard Jesus' voice. When Paul and Timothy and Silas, when, you know, when they went to Athens or when they went to Philippi or Thessalonica and they started talking about Jesus, it wasn't just their voice. It was Jesus' voice. And when we have the privilege as summer camp counselors or as neighbors or as a co-workers or whatever it may be to, to share the love of Jesus, when we talk about Jesus, it's as though Jesus' voice is speaking through us. What an incredible privilege. And we need to remember that. That, that we will be used by him and that his voice will speak through us. And then I love it says there will be one flock and one shepherd. And if you read the book of Acts, if you read the, the, the book of Galatians, you'll see there was a lot that needed to be overcome in order for there to be one flock. There were a lot of walls and barriers. It was called the dividing wall of hostility in, in the book of Ephesians between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. And they had to overcome those barriers and break down those walls for the sake of the gospel, for the purpose of being one flock. And listen, if Jewish Christians in first century Palestine could overcome those barriers, then we can overcome whatever barriers may be dividing us with the goal of being one flock. And how do you be one flock? It says they will be one flock, but it doesn't stop there. One flock, at the end of verse 16, one shepherd. You got to have your eyes on the shepherd. You got your eyes on your sheep, you're going to be scattered. You're going to be divided, but the eyes are on the shepherd. When sheep follow sheep, bad things happen. Just go to YouTube. I'm sure you'll find <laughs> lots of examples. But when sheep follow the shepherd, the sheep are united. One flock, one shepherd. Verse 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life. He can't stop talking about his sacrifice. He said it in verse 11, lay down my life. He said it in verse 15, lay down my life. He says it again in verse 17, I lay down my life. Then in verse 18, he makes it really clear. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my father. So he's sacrificial. He's relational. Also make note of this. He's powerful. He is powerful. He makes it clear. No one takes my life from me. Let me show you really how this plays out in the gospel of God. John, go to a John chapter 5. John chapter 5. 
In John 5, Jesus had just healed someone and it happened to be on the Sabbath and, and the guy had been paralyzed before and then he was carrying a mat and the Pharisees took issue with that. You can't carry stuff on the Sabbath according to their rules. And in the course of the conversation, they were already ticked at him because he, he had someone carry something on the Sabbath. But then in the course of the conversation, Jesus referred to God, as he did in John 10, as his father. And they took issue with that because they knew what he was saying. So when John 10, or sorry, John 5, verse 18, it says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so as early as John chapter 5, they knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. Like Ezekiel 34, John 10, he's the one shepherd. He's God in the flesh. They were, they were picking up that Jesus was making that clear in John 5. And notice, so they were seeking to kill him. Now look at John 7. John 7, verse 32. The Feast of Booths is happening. There's a big buzz about Jesus. No one can stop talking about him. And the, the Pharisees are like, enough is enough. We've got to bring this guy in, apprehend him. So verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. The chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So they, they were supposed to go and arrest him. Look at John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. As they're going to arrest him, they hear Jesus preach this sermon about being living water, satisfying our thirst, transforming our lives on the inside out. Look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to him, why did you not bring him? You had one job. Find Jesus. If you can't find Jesus, just find a big crowd in the middle of it. That's the guy. And look at what they say. Verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. They, the, 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 the officers, the, the police, they, they, had, they had heard the voice of the shepherd. And they, they weren't going to lay hands on him. Then look at John 8, 59. John 8, 59, Jesus had just said before Abraham was, I am, and saying I am, he was using the personal name of God, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, Jehovah, whatever you want to call it, claiming again to be God, John 8, 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the te temple. That's an instant replay I want to see in heaven. How did that play out? John 10, 39, and they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So many times they tried to kill him. They tried to arrest him. They couldn't do it. Now fast forward to John chapter 18. Remember, Jesus says, no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Look at John 18 beginning at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Jesus, 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 let's call him Judas. <laughs> Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. So these are, this is another band of officers that have come, soldiers have come to arrest him. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. 
loved ones, these are, these are grown men. These are trained soldiers. And at the sound of his voice, they drew back and fell to the ground. They scrambled to get back up off their feet, not quite sure what happened. They're dusting themselves off. And then Jesus is like, okay, you can cuff me now. Why? Because no one took his life from him. He laid it down on his own accord. In John 19.30, it says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. It wasn't over until Jesus said it was over. Jesus wasn't going to die until Jesus was ready to die. No one took it from him. He laid it down on his own. Even look what it says. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Loved ones, the nails didn't kill Jesus. The cross didn't kill Jesus. The bleeding didn't kill Jesus. Jesus died because Jesus was ready to die. He laid down his life. And that is absolutely amazing. But here's the thing. A dead shepherd, that's pretty, that's pretty encouraging, but not very practical for the sheep, right? So he did. He laid it down. But he also took it up again. And he was in control there to the minute detail of every situation and every circumstance. Jesus was in control of every moment leading up to his death and his resurrection. And what's true of his life is true of your life, even to the very end. Every situation and every circumstance, no matter what you're facing as a church, no matter what you're facing as a family, no matter what you're going through as an individual, Jesus is in complete control. He laid down his life and he will take it up again. He may lead you through the valley of the shadow of death, but you will end up at a banqueting table and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Revelation 7 talks about those who made it through the great tribulation. And talks about them thinking, thinking everything that, that these people would have gone through. It says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of their throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is our shepherd. Sacrificial, relational, powerful, in control of every situation and every circumstance. And he will wipe away every tear. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, when we think about the kind of shepherd that your son is, how could we not leap for joy at the privilege of being called sheep. And God, I pray for uh, the sheep in this flock, Lord, who are going through difficult uh, seasons, Lord, in terms of health, in terms of relationship, in terms of finances. God, I pray that these dear sheep would hear your voice would know your protecting, loving care for them, that they would know your presence, 
that they would hear you calling them by name. And God, I pray if there is anyone here who has not yet been willing to embrace their identity as sheep, who is not ready to embrace their identity as a sinner in need of a savior, in need of a shepherd who lays down his life, God, I pray that you would open their eyes, help them to see their sin, help them to see the savior, and help them to respond to the voice of the shepherd. And God, we pray that you do great and awesome things in this church and beyond for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.